0: What young people really need is diverse perspectives, people who care about them, who are trusting, loving adults who are there for him, thinking with them about who they are, what they aspire to be, and letting them try on different ways of thinking and try on their new found agency and and drive to think about things in a deep way and to try to explore that bigger meaning and that purpose and and kind of playing in that space and, and, and reflecting with them there.
1: Today's guest is Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Dr. Imordino Yang is a professor of education, psychology, and neuroscience at the University of Southern California. She also is the director of USC Center for Effective Neuroscience Development, Learning, and Education. Dr. Imordino Yang is an expert in the social and emotional development of young people across cultures. She also is an expert in understanding the implications for education. She was a public junior high school teacher, and she has won numerous awards for her discoveries in the area of neuroscience and deep learning. I'm excited for us to dive into the importance of relationships, how deep learning is fostered, and what it means when young people have a sense of meaning that is beyond themselves. Welcome, Mary Helen, to the podcast, and thank you so much for your time and being with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Ben. It's my pleasure.
1: I'm excited about this conversation today, partly because we hope that practitioners and teachers are listening to a little bit about what the science is all about in areas of as students come back to school and as they really try to get practical tips for working with kids in the day-to-day life. And I know that your mission in a lot of ways has really been to integrate science and in, in particular, neuroscience into educational processes, into thinking about how we interact with people. And so I would love if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your story as, as, as mm-hmm. an important part of your work is around stories and storytelling. And, it and we'll get into that today. But if you could just give some context to, to what brought you to USC, what brought you to do this research around uh, affective neuroscience with this developmental psychology and educational psychology.
0: So, you know, we can go back a long ways, but I'll go back to like middle school. (laughs) All right. uh, So many of us, you know, why would you you want to do that? Well, why would you ever, ever (laughs) want to go back to middle school? Yeah. I mean, or even elementary school, like I, I just, I was, I was not a good student in elementary school. I mean, I, I was a very good person. I think you could say everybody liked me. My teachers thought I was polite. I was never like a problem. But I would get like it was hard it's hard to express to this day the relief on Friday afternoon I would feel and the dread on Sunday evening. And I'm I'm sorry if any of my old original elementary school (laughs) teachers are listening to this or my middle school teachers. But it was it was really I would get home, I lived on a, a small farm and I basically that my parents had built. My parents were both from the inner city, one from Detroit, one from Yonkers, <laughs> and they decided they were going to have this little farm, and we were going to try to grow what we eat and stuff like that, and and you know as much as we could. And so I was like so engaged with that. I, I've always been really interested in the natural world, in sort of you know thinking about the ways in which we as humans are part of that world and engaging with it. And I just saw no no resonance of that at all in school. It, it always felt like I was delinquent and not doing my homework because I'd get out of that school and I had so much stuff going on. You know, it's kind of like, you know, what goes around comes around. I have a, Mm. I have a kid who's turning 16 tomorrow, who I remember when he was, you know, when he started first grade, it was the first time he'd gone to school for a full long day. Uh And, you know, about two weeks in, he said to me when I was crying on a Sunday night, I don't want to go to school. And I was like, well, you know, what what what's going on at school? Like, why do you not want to go to school? And he said to me, finally, he's like, mommy, I have so much work to do. Mm. How do you expect me to get my work done if I'm sitting in school all day?
1: Mm. Right.
0: And yeah. that is how I felt as a kid. And by the time I got to sixth grade, it was a disaster. It really was. Mm. And, and I basically stopped going. And I stopped going to school, you know, the typical way an 11-year-old would. I, just, I didn't really make a big deal. I didn't fully like conceptualize it. I just didn't wake up in the morning. And my grandma and my mom really noticed and were like, oh God, Mary Helen's not going to school. But they could see that school was not good for me. I was, I was under a lot of uh, social and physical even threat there. And it Mm -hmm. was, it was just not a place that was good for my well being at all. So they, you know, luckily I came from circumstances that, you know, my parents could afford to kind of My mom was home with us and my parents could kind of afford to let me kind of play my piano and, and, you know, work on the farm and train horses and do all the stuff I was doing, teaching neighborhood kids how to ride and all this, and then start me over again in seventh grade in a different Mm -hmm. school in the fall. And so that was really a turning point for me to really be able to study seriously things that I was interested in and to actually engage with scholarly thinking in a way that felt agentic and purposeful to me. And it was really a turning a turning point. And then throughout, I think, my education experiences, I was always also really interested in, you know, kind of how, who am I? How do I experience the world? How do other people experience the world? How do people build things together? What are sort of cultural traditions of, especially things we construct? As I look back, I wouldn't have known that, that I was kind of a naturalist and an anthropologist and a scientist all at once, but it's kind of, it kind of is who I was as a yeah. person.
1: I think there's some really fascinating things in your story that I would love to pull out, because I wonder how many kids are out there, in particular girls, Right, That are out there with that same curiosity that you had, that, that curiosity to want to know more, to understand science, to understand things, but we're in a situation where it wasn't a good fit with the environment. And that spark yeah. that was there could have been easily interpreted as possibly... Defiance, or you know, and not showing up for school, and not being compliant, because often we think about learning as and good learners as compliance, and, yes. and I think that's a that's a challenge too. And then I have to point out kind of this irony of this corrective emotional experience or something of teaching, uh, going to teach high school, but then having to teach seventh grade and yeah, taking you know, exactly. right yeah, back like, to that middle school year of now investing. Smack in with yes. it, yeah, exactly. Who helped you discover that spark in high school even that that kept you going, that, that maybe even allowed you to keep that curiosity moving forward to, to, to where you, you then went on to go to grad school and so on and so forth?
0: Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people like like anyone, any any young person. Right. There's influences from all over. And and what young people really, really need, and this actually gets to the topic of our main conversation, which is the project we just did, right? And what young people really need is diverse perspectives, people mm. who care about them, who are trusting, loving adults who are there for him, thinking with them about who they are, what they aspire mm. to be, and letting them try on different ways of thinking and try on their new found agency and and drive to think about things in a deep way and to try to explore that bigger meaning and that purpose and, and kind of playing in that space and, and, and reflecting with them there. And I had, you know, I was so blessed to have several adults in my life who did that in different ways. I had an amazing horseback riding teacher that I was working with. I had an amazing guitar teacher that I'm still very close to now, who was really a a historian of American music. And she was a a dear, dear friend and Mm. my mom, my grandmother, right? My aunt, my dad. I mean, I think a lot of people really kind of gave me the space, but also the support to Mm. have some agency in my life and to, to try things and to explore things and to be curious and to try to build the bigger understanding of why, Things yeah. happen the way they do. And they let me do stuff. You know, they let me do stuff. And I often think about, like you said, the huge numbers of kids like me or smarter than me or, or different than me, but, you know, mm. out in the world right now and girls, but also kids of color, kids yeah. of yeah. native ancestry, kids of yeah. immigrant origin, kids uh, yeah. who are in foster care, kids who don't have the kinds of social supports mm-hmm. and frankly, it's not financial supports, right. That I had as a young person. I mean, yeah. you need a place of security and a place of deep relationships and caring to really be able to explore and grow yourself in the ways that I did. And so many kids don't have that. Mm-hmm. And that is a major reason why I do the work that I do now is yeah. to try to help Schools and families and parents and youth organizations and community organizations think differently about what kids really need to thrive. Especially in my case, I'm very concerned about adolescence. I, I yeah. feel like so much of what we impose upon our kids, so many of the structures and the institutional kind of organizational benchmarking and, and progress orientations that we expect of our adolescents. Are not designed in ways that are supportive of their natural developmental social and cognitive and scholarly and individual and personal and moral and character related needs, yeah don't get me wrong, there are so many amazing teachers and community leaders and and church members and you know all you know a conservation crew corps and all the people out there who are doing amazing work with youth, but so many kids are caught in a system. That expects them, like you said, yeah. to be complicit, to toe the line, to, to do it the way we've told you, you need to do it. I give you yeah. this, you give me that. That's the way the system works. If you want to succeed, quote unquote, or yeah. have quote unquote productive failure, which is, a, a you know, I, I hate that term in school, yeah. but why are we still dividing things up into success and failure? Where's the success right. and where's the failure? in any real yeah. world accomplishment. I mean, it it is successful in some ways, but it could have been done in another way. And some things weren't exactly like you hoped. And so those yeah. kind of failed, but like, you know, stop dichotomizing mm-hmm. and expecting kids to conform to these ladder-like progressions through systems that really do not support their development of, you know, intellectual virtues, the yeah. kinds of scholarly and intellectual and humanistic Patterns of thinking and feeling and relating to other people and relating to yourself and reflecting on yeah. meaning that promote good citizenship and innovation and high productivity and a flourishing human and natural world.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there's so much there too, Mary Helen. And I, I think I've heard you speak several times. I've I've listened to you and, and and been present in in many of your talks. And I think one thing that always sticks out to me is that that passion I hear in your voice as you think about this topic. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really important to to say that is that you know there is this sense of purpose that's that's there and it's connected from. From the little girl on the farm who found curiosity as being something meaningful to a horseback riding uh, teacher and an and artist to, to really help you discover that spark and to fan that flame, to really live and move into your purpose. And I think any anybody who works in the field with young people and has been out there with them, I mean, one of the greatest travesties in the in the world is, is when a, a young person with so much potential has that spark and you see it. But- is never able to live out that potential, often for things outside of their control, like systemic racism or right. oppression or uh, right. lack of resource. And so I want to kind of uh, transition into thinking about now who you are as a as a scientist and researcher. In particular, I want to start with this kind of discovery that I've heard at kind of a core of a lot of your, your talks of what deep learning is. And I think it was in a 2009 paper, and then and you talked about it also in your your TED Talks as well about really how learning is much deeper than what we often talk about. And is still talked about as being a higher order kind of functioning in our brain.
0: Yeah, sure. So so when I got to uh, USC to begin working with Antonio and Hanna Damasio, we basically, I, I, they had a conversation, I'll never forget, Antonio and I. So we basically sat down and said, you know, I'm really interested in how emotions are triggered by social interactions and how they're also shaped by, you know, our higher level values and beliefs about each other and about ourselves and how emotions happen between people, even when they don't directly pertain to the real physical wellness of each of you, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, are you interested in that? I was like, absolutely. He's like, all right figure out a way to study it. <laughs> I was like, like, you got a year. I just yes. remember, I was like, okay. So like, you know, and he had some ideas, I had some ideas and we tried a lot of different things, but it finally came down to something. I I mean, I remember distinctly this laboratory meeting that we had at the beginning of the, the Brain and Creativity Institute's founding. I was the first, you know, uh, mm. person who was hired on, it was brand new. And I got to a point where I remember Antonio and saying to me, you know what, this isn't working. Let's switch and do something else. Let's try something else. And I said, okay, let me just try this one thing I've been working on with you. Like he had been trying to make beautiful films or pieces of art, all these things that we could use to evoke these emotions. And I, it Mm. just wasn't working well. And so I did something else. I just put up a picture of, it's a nurse in Sudan, it turns Mm -hmm. out, right? Who was, And told her story. She was someone who, it's an amazing, right, human rights worker who was going out into the most dangerous and rural parts of the country and teaching Mm -hmm. women how to attend to each other's childbirths and all these kinds of things. And I just explained her story, and I just stopped. Mm. said, how does this person's story make you feel? Mm. And I looked around the lab, and, like, Antonio had, like, tears on his face. Everybody was just like, (laughs) I'm Mm. like, okay, I think we have our method, right? Mm. And so... The, the trick, actually, wasn't a trick. It actually is amazingly kind of obvious when you think about it. What really moves humans is the stories of other humans. Yeah. So what we did, what I did then, was to start to bring together almost like mini documentaries. I, I kind of built the stories of people from around the world using real footage that I could find in mm. various, you know, from news sources, from other stuff, and kind of put together these curated sets of of almost like mini documentaries around a person with with story vignettes that I composed. And what I ended up doing was, you know, thinking I would use those in the MRI scanner to have people experience these different emotions. But what happened from there was that I realized, well, to really fully appreciate a civil rights leader or or a person who's you know, like this woman in Sudan, who's this nurse, you need a long time, like you need to really understand her journey, not just what she's doing now, but the context in which it's happening. And you need a lot of information. And I just couldn't do that that fast in the scanner Mm. because of the way the techniques work, right? You need to have something that's going to move people into a state of inspiration and back out reliably on cue over and over like a hundred times, right? Right, Like that's not an easy (laughs) thing to do without getting try. and just right? for people yeah. who,
1: who don't maybe know much about the fMRI scanner, what happens when you go into yeah, that little that right. yeah, space? You need right? a lot and of what we yeah.
0: call signal to noise. You've right. got to have them redo this what you think is the same thing yeah. over and over and over again, and then undo it, and then redo it, and then undo it, and you keep you know you add yeah. those all up, and you look at what's common to all these trials versus all those trials. Yes, yeah. kind of that was the original way. Now we have other ways to do right. things that are more um, you know a little more sophisticated methodologically, but that was what we were doing then. So I realized, well, I'm going to have to sit people down outside of the scanner first and tell them all the stories. And I started doing that. And I just asked them the simple question after each one. I would tell them the story that, you know, with a script I had memorized, show them the materials that I had prepared and just ask them, how does this person's story make you feel? That's Mm -hmm. it. You know, feel is ambiguously cognitive and affective, right? You can tell me whatever you want about it. And what I quickly realized, four people in to be exact, is that the answers people were giving to that question, deceptively simple question, were amazingly interesting and complex. And I thought, okay, Mm. we need a video camera. We're going to capture the interview and the neural data from the scanner and ask people in real time in the scanner to tell us how they're feeling by pushing buttons, which is really all you can do from in there. Because if you talk, it screws up the data, right? How strongly do you feel? Like not very, all the way up to really overwhelmingly so. And then afterward, we'd ask them again when they come out of the scanner. So that was the first Sort of development of this method that we now have adapted in many ways to study teenagers, to study people in different mm-hmm. cultural groups around the world, to study various things, and it turned out to be incredibly revealing. And the first findings that you're referring to, the ones that came out in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in in 2009, and actually won the you know the Cosarelli Prize that year, yep. The, yep. right, the best paper in the social and psychological sciences, and. What, what we basically found was we had, and this was Antonio's idea, I have to say, that he thought we should contrast emotions that are about kind of real physical embodied here and now social things, mm-hmm. right? Like here's somebody stepping off a curb and breaking their ankle, right? And you're like, ah, oh, you know, and remember, yeah. there's, no, there's no actors where well, you can see in front of you mm-hmm. what you should be having a emotional reaction to. And then comparing that systematically with versions of those emotions that are in some ways shared, right? You're admiring or you're feeling compassion for, but now the admiration or the compassion doesn't pertain to the physical thing you can see. It pertains to this bigger psychological story mm-hmm. of who they are and why they're there and what the bigger picture is, right? Compassion for social pain, right? Where you look mm-hmm. at the person, you don't see any pain. Except when you know their story of how their spouse died, and blah, 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 blah. Then you feel right. their, you know, compassion for their psychological pain. And it was his idea to contrast those conditions systematically. And then we had a control stories, which were not very extraordinary. Just two stories about real people, kind of interesting, but that's kind of it, right? And what we showed was that. First of all, our, our hypotheses were robustly confirmed, which these hypotheses came from his prior work with lesion patients from Iowa, right, who right. had strokes, which is that the, when people subjectively at that moment in the scanner push buttons to say, I feel hugely moved by this story right now, I am, mm-hmm. which I now interpret when, by talking to them, you realize, well, what do you mean by that? I'm thinking deeply about it. It really matters to me. I'm really Mm -hmm. trying to understand what, you know, what's going on. And, you know, some of, some of my students, like Rebecca Gottlieb has recently shown that, you know, the degree to which uh, young people do that predicts how much they remember the story five years later. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so when people are telling us they're really deeply engaged with thinking about something and very moved by it, we saw activations in regions of the brain Like the anterior insula, which is basically had been known for 50 years to be kind of visceral. And so we wanted to know, when you feel compassion for another person's social pain, Mm -hmm. when you feel admiring of another person's virtue, Mm -hmm. are you still activating these platforms as the sort of substrate for the experience, the subjective Mm -hmm. awareness of that
1: (laughs) <laughs> understanding
0: state, and and that was what that work first showed. But we and and also all the way down the brain stem regions of the brain that are involved below the level of conscious awareness in maintenance of consciousness, like as compared to coma, right? In physiological regulation. As compared to dysregulation and death. I mean, really regions of the brain we share with alligators in all vertebrates. Right. Right. So that was the first insight. But then there was another insight which has really spawned a whole bunch of work for me now, which I think is really important for education, which is this insight that we had this at first very paradoxical finding in the middle of the back of the head and also the middle of the frontal lobe, there's this, this characteristic set of regions that we now know as the default mode network. Mm-hmm. And and just a few years before, and I think 2001, Marcus Raichel and other colleagues at Washington University St. Louis had done this very clever work in which they... You know, basically what happened was they thought, well, we're using MRI to study all these different kinds of processing. We give you math problems. We give you, you know, language. We give you scary snakes. We give you pornography, right? And we see what happens, right, in the brain, yeah. but in this kind of reactive way. And, and they thought, well, what would happen if we basically just put people in the scanner and ask them to do something really effortful and cognitively demanding, but then to contrast with that, think about nothing. Just, just relax and mm-hmm. be here and don't fall asleep, you know, but don't think about anything in particular. And what they found was that these regions of the brain that are in the core of the brain were massively activated for the condition of resting mm. and deactivated when people were doing this really effortful, what we call end-back task in psychology, where you have to memorize what happened three flashes ago right. and then try to update all the time. And you know, that kind of presented a weird conundrum. How could it be mm. that these tissues, which are among the most metabolically expensive in the human body right the, the tissue that is acting this way in the core of the back of what we call the posturomedial medial cortices is basically in the middle of the back of the head deep down inside that tissue uses more glucose and oxygen when you're just daydreaming mm. per unit space time than like the same size piece of tissue you know muscle tissue in your thigh muscle uses in the same amount of time when you're running a marathon wow. right it's, it's extremely expensive metabolically. It takes a lot of energy to run these tissues. Why are they activating when you're doing nothing hmm. and deactivating when you're doing something really difficult and mentally effortful? So I think our study may have been the first that actually showed a systematic activation of these regions to a task, when we were asking somebody to do an effortful on cue, please, you know, do this thing for us. And what was the task? It was to think about how do you feel about this story, right? Mm. How, How deeply are you engaged with it? What does it mean to you, right? How emotionally moving is it to you? And that was a major insight for us, I think, which was that these systems, that are activated when you know you're resting are activated because our so-called default is to think about the bigger meaning yeah. it's to it's, it's to build a story it's to let your mind transcend the yeah. real physical here and now and daydream about things mm. that don't exist yet or alternatively effortfully you know focus on Trying to deeply understand something that is mm-hmm. not physically here now. Why does a ball roll down a ramp and the moon go around the earth? Right. Oh, there's this bigger hidden idea of gravity. Yeah. You can't see gravity directly. You have to construct a story in your mind that integrates these pieces together. And so that was the fundamental insight that's driving a lot of our work now, yeah. which is how do these networks play into? the real, meaningful, deep, emotionally engaged, self-relevant kinds of narratives that young people come to learn to build around themselves, their communities, the social world around them, but also intellectual and scholarly ways of understanding things. And when you think about what, what we're actually saying here is that the deep meaning that kids build for themselves around what stuff's for, how it connects to who they are, what it means for them in the future, imagining possible futures, right? Building history, a coherent story out of what happened in the past, all these things that basically are about mental time travel, right? They're the things you can't physically perceive here and now, right? Yeah. That, That the networks in the brain that are centrally involved in supporting this kind of thinking, which is critical to the development of young people both academically and personally,
1: mm-hmm.
0: are deactivated systematically when you're engaging in a kind of one, two, three, all eyes on me, move your pencil on the paper, uh, play this video game, and ding, it goes, and you right? And right. and and what we're learning, not just us, but you know, many, many labs around the world, is that it's the ability to kind of flexibly engage right. in outwardly focused attention and then also to appropriately systematically, strategically disengage to make bigger yep. moral or deeper or more complex understanding, what we call yeah, it. Yeah.
1: yeah. And Mary Helen, I want to just, you know, kind of bring this home for practitioners too, before we kind of think about how this meaning making and this way of engaging and then stepping back and uh, disengaging to then make meaning. I, I remember this from a conversation we've had of this experiential learning that you're engaged in it and you're doing the d- d- deep work but then creating space to step back and now to to be able to process it to talk about it what does it mean for you for your identity for your culture how does that how does that work and I think that that's really important to, to think about in our in today's education system right as kids are coming back from an experience that's been very challenging and, and the way that the brain works and 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 for young people and and also this idea that you mentioned mentioned about social pain and and for adolescents in particular that felt social pain is arguably probably the strongest time of their lives that they feel social pain even yeah. if, even more so than uh, childhood or, or or adults is there something that's happening that there's a felt experience that's different than than adults and sometimes we lose track of that as we're engaging young people and and so can you talk a little bit about as as uh, practitioners and 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 teachers are are, are engaging with young people who have gone through some more so than others traumatic experiences of, of uh, social unrest and injustice and, and mm-hmm. seeing visually a lot of these things that were going on in our society, as well as uh, some of the isolation of being away from their friends. And we know that, we, as you have made this argument multiple times, that we are relational people, that the emotions is relational, that our learning is, emo- is relational. Can you kind of talk a little bit about uh, about what are some things that 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 teachers and practitioners can do as they're as they're welcoming pe- uh, kids back or engaging young people after this year?
0: Yeah. So I think there's a a couple things we want to think about. We really this what this year is begging us to do is to step back and think about what is education for, what counts as a meaningful opportunity for learning, and especially in adolescence, what really counts as a meaningful opportunity for learning is the ability to kind of experience understanding, to Mm. feel the power of your own and other people's curiosity to engage with here and now, and to connect those here and now skills and ideas. And like, here's how you do long division, right? To bigger ideas, right? You learn fractions, but in the service of, you know, Zeno's paradox, right? You know, halfway to the door, halfway to the door, halfway to the door, right? You never get to the door, you Mm. know, like these kinds of connections between the instrumental skills and knowledge you need to have and the big ideas that that knowledge constructs into and serves, Mm -hmm. that is the essence of meaningful educational experience Mm. and you can think of it as that, you know, basically whatever you're having emotion about you are thinking about and whatever you're thinking about, you have the possibility of learning about.
1: Mm. Wait, say say that one more time. (laughs) I think that's really good.
0: Yeah. I like it. Whatever you're having emotion about, right. Is what you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. That's what, you know, and whatever you're thinking about, you can have the possibility of learning about Mm -hmm. Okay. which means that emotion is the starting place for learning? It's the driver that it's the rudder on the back of the ship, right? you know the rudder and the engine. It's the thing that's pushing the ship in a particular direction and 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 accelerating it. And so what we need to really do, I think, in education right now, is shift our focus from kids and teachers and families and parents having emotions that mainly pertain to outcomes. Mm -hmm. Did you achieve X outcome successfully? Mm -hmm. Check or not check, right? Which is where that whole learning loss narrative comes from, right? And shift to emotions about ideas.
1: Hmm.
0: How do we get our young people and our teachers to really engage in working and thinking together about the power of the ideas that scholarship enables. Hmm. What does it mean to understand the world mathematically? What does it mean to produce a piece of art or literature or music that helps others understand the nature of a kind of experience, right? What does it mean to really appreciate what gravity is and how it's organizing the universe we live in, right? Those big ideas, connecting those ideas to daily work, you know, Mm. you can't do it for somebody. And this is the work and the art of teaching. You need to set up opportunities to think together Mm -hmm. around projects, around experiences, around things people have noticed, around skills. They then come to understand that they need one of my colleagues joseph south describes it as you know changing from a push model of education where like you're missing things kid i'm going to give them to you uh-huh. right yeah. and and now you've missed a lot of things so i'm going to give it to you even faster right like right. turn up the fire hose right as compared to setting up learners to have a pull model mm. they have curiosities mm-hmm. they have interests they have a desire mm-hmm. to, to be powerful as thinkers and they, it makes them want to pull in the things that they need yeah. to be able to do the thinking they and and predicting and understanding and modeling and and expressing that they see as important oh, so good. what it mm-hmm. really means for teachers now is we need to step back and think about what is the subjective experience of the learners. Mm-hmm. Engage with that. We have to start there. Yeah. And then as a teacher, what your job basically is, is to help kids learn to expand the kinds of ideas and, and things they can have emotions about to things they may not have known about before or may not have had the ability to appreciate sufficiently to recognize the kinds of emotions that would be warranted, right? Yeah. Why is chemistry so important when you're studying lead in the water in Flint, Michigan or whatever right. it is? Right. When you situate the studies as the the, what kids are desperately needing to pull into their narrative, to be able to make sense of the things they've witnessed and experienced this last year. There's so much work that we could do around different populations of kids and individuals, kids stories. What have they lived through? How can they conceptualize those things? How can they understand not just the things they have witnessed and document those using English literature skills and journalism skills and interview skills and, you know, videography skills. You know, they could do so many kinds of things. That would be an amazing gift to the future generations to understand their lived experiences. But then to reflect on those of other people and to really engage with one another in perspective taking, in conversations around ideas. How do you use your math? right to make sense of the way hmm. viruses spread to make understanding of the economic impacts yeah. or the impacts in your own neighborhood right we really need to step back and think about not just relevance as like directly relevant to the actual content area that has been experienced but relevance as a as something that is basically a person's own feeling when they're thinking about something yeah
1: yeah that's you know? that's that is such an amazing just an amazing insight that you were saying for me, too. I think about the people who pulled those things out of me as well. That Yeah. That, that when, when, and still to today, it's not like we're not really motivated when people try to push us necessarily. And, and to be pulled, and that's when we start to think about this bigger idea of, purpose, right? Of connecting right. to something that's really drawing you towards you. And that it's not a deficit model of looking at kids that we have to put something in you, but what do we bring out of you? And that's a right. really powerful shift. And thinking outside of the school system, even, I think, you know, one of the, the the grant funding agencies that have really funded a lot of my work and has also funded your work is John Templeton Foundation. I want us to move to thinking about and talking about Together We Transcend and this partnership that you made with Sage and Seekers that, that yeah. matches mentors from, from aging populations of older adults with young people in the LA area. And really thinking about the, how you've set up this, this, com, com, this, really what you've learned from science to this moment of thinking about how it plays out in this mentor relationship and having kids really talk about their stories. So let's turn our attention to that, to that John Templeton Foundation grant that you have too. And I would love for you just to give kind of a brief description of that, just the basis of, of what happens in those activities. And then I want you to, to, to dive into some of the experiences of the young people that you've heard.
0: So I, I want to, th- uh, give a big shout out to Ellie Katz and the Sages and Seekers organization, which came to us originally and said, "We we do these kind of relationship building activities, right, with with, with teenagers and and elders from their own communities, and and you know, would you like to work with us?" And I thought this is an amazing thing, so I really want to shout yeah. out to them for having designed the main features of the intervention. And we thought with them about you know, refining it in particular ways around this project, but they were doing amazing work. But they hadn't done the work with low SES, inner city communities in Los Angeles yet. So that was a real, a real advance that the John Templeton Foundation's uh, funding was able to make possible. Mm. So that's, that's a, a, a big kudos and thank you to them. Yeah. So my PhD student at the time, now postdoc, Rodrigo Riveros, worked with Ellie Katz from Sages and Seekers and, for, and with her staff and with myself and others. And what we did was design a study to examine the ways that what appeared to be these really powerful relationships were actually having impact on the people engaged in the relationships, both the elderly people and the teenagers. I mean, we have a particular focus on the teenagers, but, but both were deeply moved by these, by these opportunities to tell stories to each other, to engage with one another around their own personhood it's really a program that's meant to help both partners they're mm. they're friends they uh, build a friendship and they, she sets it up so that the young people and the elders you know the sages and the seekers pair each other they pair themselves they talk around and they mm. kind of speed date as she says and they get to know each other and they find someone they would like to know better and to work with in both directions and they they pair themselves up and they begin this amazing journey, this eight-week-long journey, where they engage in these activities that are designed to support them in constructing narratives around mm. the meaning of their own life. And for the elderly people, it's a it's mainly around building this generative narrative about what you've accomplished in your life, what you are giving back to the world now as a, as an elder. And for the young people, it's a narrative of of hopefulness for the future mm-hmm. of purpose of of the the wishes you have for your adult self mm-hmm. as you move forward and you know the the what you envision as being the life and the person you would love to be and the way that you would enact that mm-hmm. in your world and so what we find that i think is really amazing you know from a scientific perspective is that well first the intervention had you know and then we compared it because it's a scientific study we compared it with a with a control condition right which is not meant to have the same impact but you know, to demonstrate the instrumental nature of these these storytelling mm-hmm. and friendships and not just, you know, maybe just hanging out with an old person and a, and a young person. Right. You know, it just makes you feel great. And then you go on to have all these outcomes without any of the stories. Yeah. Right. So we had a, a movie tel- uh, watching co- uh, condition where they pair up and they eat cookies and they watch a movie together that both of them would like. Right. And we pick yeah. these nice classic movies and they, they watch them and they eat cookies and they talk about the movie right? Yep. So compared to that, which mm-hmm. they all enjoy that too, but that doesn't lead to nearly the same kind of psychological growth and intellectual virtue, right. right. compared to that, what happens to the young people who are in the active storytelling condition is that on average, they increase their levels of self-reported purpose in life, social wisdom, virtue development, right? In a, in a myriad of ways, especially so if they had low particularly low levels of purpose mm. or of of self and agency and and, yeah. and autonomy at the beginning but what is really instrumental I think for educators to know is that this happens sort of statistically via it's it's explained by the degree to which young people, In their weekly reports back to us, we had them just pick up their cell phone and do a one-minute little check-in after Mm -hmm. every session eight times and just say, you know, what are you thinking about? What how'd it go today? What, you know, what what are you left chewing on, right? What do you want to tell us? Do you have any suggestions for how to run the program? Like anything, you know, whatever you want to tell us, but we want you to reflect on what was going on today and what you're thinking about, what you feel like. Is that we find that the degree to which kids show these increases in virtue from pre to post is mediated by, it's explained statistically by their gradual increase in what we're calling values-oriented reflections. So in other words, it's the degree to which kids start to notice the bigger reason Mm -hmm. why,
1: Mm.
0: the broader purpose, the bigger sort of ethical or transcendent reason Mm. that connects their I always wanted to go to college and be a scientist or a pediatrician or I want to you know I want to be whatever I want to be to why do you right and start to reorient their sense of agency and purpose around that bigger cause and that bigger virtue that's Mm. abstract Mm -hmm. that's complex that's transcendent and that can operationalize in any number of pathways of action. Right yeah, and what we think is that that ability to kind of mentally transcend, which our other work is showing in our lab, is reliant on this kind of default mode network mm-hmm. activity, right? yeah that that ability to transcend and build this higher level transcendent meaning is helping kids make sense out of things, build a story of self, connect what they're doing here and now to the bigger reason of why and who they are and what they're becoming, but it also is instrumental because it allows them to be more resilient. When mm-hmm. your goal is to, to get an A on this and then to get into college and then to do this, you, you do have to do those things right. in order to be able to get to pediatrician. You can't be a pediatrician if you don't get good yeah. grades in school, yeah. granted, but like what if something happens and you screw up? What if something happens in your personal life and you and you you miss a semester of school? what is it, right? Then the, are you totally derailed because now you're not following your preconceived path? Right. Well, if you've got a values-based mm-hmm. understanding of your orientation, that becomes your North Star. And you can do it in many ways. Yeah. If you don't make medical school, you could be some other kind of health worker or you could not be a health worker at all when you decide what you're actually interested in is, is is journalism but for the same reason you originally thought when you were 15 you wanted to be a doctor you actually want to be a journalist because what you're actually great at is interviewing people and 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 narratizing their experiences in a way that will help others understand right yeah. so so that you come to understand your own actions and what you see around you in the world mm-hmm in terms of bigger iteratively reconstructed beliefs and values right. about what really matters and yeah. and when you do that that our research in this project suggests is a very powerful motivator of well-being purpose development yeah. of intellectual virtue it.
1: yeah that's really special and and i wonder with all the pressure that teachers have and practitioners have if if sometimes they forget how meaningful just that those intentional relationships are in helping young people connect to something bigger by really showing interest in them and and what potential they have in the world uh, and and the ideas and to really going back to your childhood of bringing out that curiosity in a way that allows young people to weather the storm, that, it, that that we live in a time where performance is often the, the king and results and people begin to form their worth and value around performance. And that actually sets people up for failure. If they, it compared to that motivation behind the same pursuit of excellence, Around something bigger to, to connect That's something right. bigger that says I I I, I want to do this not only for myself but for for my community for my family and 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 that world uh, that we as we raise up the next generation of thinkers and and of Mary Helens of of, of how do we connect you know, their own yeah. people let them be their yeah. own people they're gonna do something true, true. different and amazing yeah yeah, yeah but to connect <laughs> to that that powerful sense of purpose that allows yeah. you to move forward and. What a great discovery and and way that your research Continues to evolve, and if you if you haven't seen Mary Helen's work, I just encourage you to look her up. And she she we can, I could talk to you all day, and I but I don't want to keep you on you uh, too long. But to kind of wrap it up, we've all lived through some you know stressful times, and 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 some have lived even more in more stressful situations right now. What is a couple pieces of advice? One or even one or two things that you say if all else fails, these two things are really important to keep in mind when you're working with young people?
0: Gosh. <laughs> I know, pressure is hard, on. That's a hard <laughs> question. I mean, I, I would say when all else fails, what young people need is what you said. It's It's the unshakable knowledge that there are adults who love them. Mm. And in any capacity in which that happens, any appropriate capacity in which that happens, that there are... Adults who care about them, who who believe in them as people, and whose judgments of them and whose love for them and whose pride in them is sheerly the joy of Mm. them Mm. and not tied to any kind of instrumental achievement. Yeah. Though they can share in the wondrousness of achieving together, but what is the bigger narrative you're constructing around that work mm. right and and to think that what we really need at the end of the day is each other right? Mm-hmm. And, and and this isn't code speak for anything goes like academic yeah. you know mediocrity is fine i mean i did a, a doctorate at harvard i know about hard work yes okay? yeah but but the idea is when you have the bigger purpose in mind and that purpose is a story that mm. you tell yourself and iteratively re-examine I would say also to to educators, understand and appreciate that you too have a story of this pandemic. You too have lived through a time that is unprecedented in human history. And thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being the the people who are most directly on the front lines, the parents and the teachers, with helping our young people make meaning of what happened. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but using what happened as a force for good using these disruptions as painful as many of them have been to the extent possible as a source of innovation, as a source of power for understanding the way the world can work
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and understanding that, that those relationships that you build with young people are the force that actually enable them to shape their brain development epigenetically. What much science is now showing is that Mm -hmm. throughout the lifespan, but especially in certain periods of the lifespan—adolescence and you know, child, infancy and childhood, and particularly adolescence and early transition to parenthood—and in elderly people, right? These are the most sort of socially dependent periods of life and brain development. What what we what we're now finding is that it's the way the person subjectively experiences their relationships themselves in relationship mm-hmm. to their own sense of what's happening here and now. And it's around that. So you can't take away the pain. You can't erase what happened Mm -hmm. and doing so would not actually be helpful. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is be the kind of keel on the ship so that you're holding the whole vessel in form, right. And, and letting the kids, giving them opportunities to use their their engagement with each other, their engagement with this time in history, their meaning making, as the as the, the the outboard engine and the and the rudder that's going to push that mm. keel around. Let them drive, and you be the one that helps them figure out the the, the direction in which they're driving. So this really means don't. You, we're going to have to start where people are, and that includes where you are and where your kids are. Take the time to stop. And be with them,
1: mm-hmm. think
0: with them, and then be looking as the, the as the professional that you are. Be looking for opportunities to infuse scholarly skills into that search. Right. Yeah. Well, you've witnessed these things. Why don't you use your documentary film, you know, making talents to to go document this and share with the class, and or why don't you use your writing to interview and to write uh, accounts? Either of this or a fictitious, some other situation that's nothing like this. But use your math, use your history to understand the current social justice situation. Talk with each other. Talk with people who are different than you and systematically engage yeah. in this purposeful way in meaning building. Mm. And the, the scholarly skills follow that. They're pulled in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's- so don't
0: get the other, the other piece of advice is don't get frantic. Don't think, okay, that's a nice like yeah. you know, thing for, for, for people who can afford it. But my kids right now, they just need like me to pour it into them because right. if they don't catch up, they're gonna be forever behind. I I I I get that. It's so tempting to just wanna give it to people. Yeah. But it isn't the same when you give it as when they build it. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. wanna think how can we as an institution of a school, of a community, of a family, how can we set young people up? remove barriers to uh, and obstacles to opportunities so that they can build it for themselves as efficiently as possible. Yeah. That's the way to think about it.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And giving young people a sustainable motivation. And I've heard it said, and I, I don't know actually where it came from, but when pain gets transformed into purpose, it's one of the most powerful motivators in the world. And so Absolutely. that's the hope, right, is that we can help young people find meaning and be able to transform it into a purpose that changes our world and thank you so much mary helen for your time thank you, i know how busy you are so thank you very much no, and, you too. and I look, we look forward to following you in the future too so thank
0: you so much Thanks. i really appreciate it
1: thank you for listening to our show i want to thank our guest dr mary helen i'm yang for being on our show today This podcast was also made possible through the generous support from a grant from the John Templeton Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Tune in next time as we have Dr. Krista Mahari with us, and she'll talk about the incredible power of what happens when we allow youth to feel seen, known, and heard.